like how that's set up too. Paul went like this. Like, does he want me to do it? He already knows the answer. Yeah. All right. Well, good evening, Saints. Good evening. Tonight is going to be an extraordinary night as we dig into the word together. All of you will be benefited as we go through chapters 9 and 10 in the book of Jeremiah. The sovereign Lord is faithful to this congregation. In the last month, we have been growing in our marriages and parenting, leadership and responsibility, and the overall awareness of the requirement that God is placing upon us. You can look at that yellow portion of the map. And you can feel a weight of responsibility on you, but God is building us up for that. We are also being made of the overall, overall requirement that God is placing on each individual person. We as a body have been selected to perform a very special task on this earth. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But the Lord has selected each one of you to take part in this plan. He is intimately aware of his flock. And he knows the needs of his people. He knows the needs of every person sitting in this room tonight. Tonight, God is going to give us amazing gems of revelation so that we can be propelled into being his sanctified servants, specially selected soldiers, promised priesthood presented before him for his particular promises to Israel and the nations. You guys ready to get in? Yes. Well, before we do... We're going to briefly recap a few notes from last week. We have been reiterating the fact that all, say all, all biblical prophecy is a repeating cyclical pattern that is built upon previous revelation. So when you are reading a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, you already know that he is building upon previous revelation that comes from the Torah, and all of the previous prophets before him. The Torah lays the groundwork for these revelations, and the prophets build upon it and warn the hearers according to it. The writings guide how the people of God walk in the light of that revelation, and the Brit Kadashah adds clarity and builds upon it. They are all intimately connected as one book. Now last week we covered a pattern of progression that we found in Jeremiah 6, 22 through 26. And we want to remind you of that. I'm going to read the passage and Judah's going to comment. This is what the Lord says. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. Saints, the land of where? The land of the north. Let's keep going. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard reports about them, and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us, pain like that of a woman in labor. Now, if you remember from last week, a phrase like this can sound a bit odd. We're talking about a nation, we're talking about men, and describing labor pains. But these passages are not unique to this specific part of Jeremiah. In fact, this pattern is displayed again and again. As we keep going through 25 and 26, you'll notice another phrase. Do not go out to the fields or walk on the roads, for the enemy has a sword, and there is terror on every side. O my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. 
mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son. For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Where have you guys heard that before? We have an enemy from the land of the north, pain like that of a woman in labor, and it concludes with wailing or mourning as for an only son. Nick, will you help us out with that? So, we've got 22 through 26 here. Judah was just enumerating those three steps that we found as a cyclical pattern that continues time and time again throughout the Word. Uh, we learned about the repeating nature of this pattern throughout biblical history and prophecy, but the good part is, is that <coughs> this pattern will ultimately culminate at the end of the age as described in the book of Zechariah. That's Zechariah 12 and verses 10 through 11. In these verses, the Jewish nation of Israel will receive Messiah as a whole. Amen. And that is a good promise. Amen. This pattern, it starts with the pronouncement of judgment, but we want you to realize that it's ultimately pointing to hope and restoration. First for Israel, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. One thing that we didn't touch on last week that we wanted to go a little bit deeper on in this pattern is Matthew 24 and how it relates to this pattern and the end of the age. So in Matthew 24, verse 6, it says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Mm. There will be wars. Jesus will tell you where the invasion comes from in a minute. But we wanted to highlight the fact that in Matthew 24, we again see these birth pains. Let's continue in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel... Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is describing the nature of these wars. He refers to Daniel's writings to illustrate the events that will take place during that time. This will be the greatest birth pain that we've experienced up to this point. Armies will come from what direction? The north. The armies will come from the north. And they will set themselves up in the temple of God Almighty, this is a painful birth pain that will be experienced. Look at verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Yeah. You see, all the nations, they're going to look, and first they're going to mourn. They're going to see this this Messiah coming on the clouds, riding in power and great glory. This fits perfectly in line with the pattern that we're talking about that we see in Jeremiah. As we continue tonight in these teachings, we're going to outline several themes that will affect the remainder of our study in the book of Jeremiah. And we're also going to make several practical applications to our own lives tonight. I'm, I'm really looking forward to what the Lord is going to do practically and also through understanding of his word in a deeper level, what he's going to do in us tonight. I'm absolutely thrilled. Come on. Saints, 
We want to be those that fully understand the word, that are scholarly, that also have the spirit of God at work in us. So we're getting started. We came in late, working through an intro that's typed, but we want to interact with this together tonight. Why don't we take a moment and in your seats, raise your hands as we begin to pray. Then we'll jump into reading the text. Mighty one, we thank you for each and every life that is in here. Lord, that you have made us into a family. You have made us your sons. And you have made us your soldiers. Mighty King, commander of the universe, we're asking that you would breathe on us tonight and open our minds to understand the scripture. Lord, that you might give us your marching orders and equip your people to perform great exploits. That we might see your will and your kingdom advance here and now in our time and our day. Lord, that it would be carried to the very edges of the nations. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Brother Linton, you can help us out and read chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave, leave my people and go away from them. For there are adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people, that make ready their tongue like a boat to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Be aware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver, and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. But what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks with deceit. With his mouth, he each speaks cordially to his neighbor. But in his heart, he sets a trap for him. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the desert pastures. They are desolate and untraveled, and the lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds of the air have fled, and the animals are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will lay waste to the towns of Judah so no one can live there. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has, inst- who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, it is because they are forsaken my law, which I sent before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the bells as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says, See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poison water. I will scatter them among the nations that neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now. Call for the wailing women to come. Women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come, come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. 
how ruined we are, how great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, O women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public square. Say, this is what the Lord declares. The dead bodies of men will lie like refuse on the open field, like cut grain behind the reaper, with no one to gather them. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Come on. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The days are, come, are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are, un, who are circumcised only in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the custom of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of a forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought in from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made in their dress, in, in, is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. The Come on. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouse. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idol. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says. At this time, I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness and I must endure it. My tent is destroyed. All 
bondage ropes, ropes are snapped. My sons are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord. So they do not prosper and all their flock is scattered. Listen, the report is coming. A great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the town of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals. I know, O oh Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger. Lest you reduce me to nothing. Pour your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. Well, needless to say, we have some content to cover tonight. And, uh... All of it was extraordinarily simple, and you learned it when you were in Sunday school, right? <laughs> Look, I think it's probably best that we pick up in verse 1, as is our custom, and we will work our way through it. But where we start is particularly important. Get one verse 1 for us again. Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that my head were a spring of water. Saints, we've taught you in previous weeks about the nature of prophetic writings and the spiritual artistry that they employ, that there's real, raw emotion. That's what you're seeing here. This is not just an ancient text. This is the emotion that the prophet is experiencing because of God's interaction with him and the state of the people. He's putting God's emotion into his own words, and he's communicating it. This is about as real as it gets. This section begins with the prophet feeling what God feels. And it causes him to go, oh. What does that mean? Nobody actually knows exactly what that means, and yet you know exactly what it means. It's an expression of emotion, not one that is fully articulated. It is the heart's cry of the man. Look, one of the things that is so beautiful about this is that it's not just Jeremiah's emotion. It's a window into God's actual heart as revealed by his servants. Now, what section of the Tanakh is Jeremiah? It's in the prophets. Miss Terry, would you get Deuteronomy 5.29 for me? And then uh, Nolan, if you get Matthew 23.37 through 39. We're going to take a look, and we'll see as we get going, how God expresses his emotion through his servants over the course of history. God's heart from the beginning was that, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and by implication to keep my commands so that it may go well with them and their children. God's desire, even in the midst of judgment, is that our hearts might be inclined to fear him. Not that we would continue and persist in the way that we had been, but that it would cause a change and a radical shift. Not just for the individual, but for the generations that would come after them. These are rare insights into God's desire for his people, and it's best revealed through his servants. Now, here, Matthew 23, 37-39. How often I have longed 
gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Look, your house is left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking in the Newer Testament. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is an expression of Jesus longing to gather them. We can see here a similarity between God's servant, Jeremiah, and the perfect servant of Jesus. But what are they both patterning? They are patterning this after God expressing in Deuteronomy. Both of them came proclaiming judgment, but they also longed and wept for the people. This was not just commands. This was not just repent. You are seeing the emotion of God being stirred up in these servants saying, oh, I have longed to gather you. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? Seeing a window into God's heart, the servant's heart. Now, we're going to, as we move on, you're going to see some more similarities develop between Jeremiah and Jesus as we move forward. So let's pick up in verse 2 and read on down to 3. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave my people and go away from for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Did you hear how that verse number two started again? We had another cry. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers. We wanted to uh, put a couple slides on the screen starting with the Masoretic text, because there are a few Hebrew words at play here that we wanted to make sure that you guys understood. You see, up in the top right, and they bend their tongues like their bow for the truth, for lies, but not for the truth. It says, they are valiant upon the earth for evil. They proceed evil. And down in the bottom right, they know not the Lord. So we wanted to give you some insight into these highlighted portions. We're going to put the inner linear up on the screen, and it's going to to start being more and more clear as we read this here. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they know not me, saith the Lord. This is becoming a lot more clear. We can see in the inner linear right here that the issue is is that they are not valiant for truth. A valiance, a a a zeal, a going after the truth of the Lord. It is that is not what is propelling them. And so, what happens? Well, they get caught up and wrapped up in evil, and they proceed into greater and greater levels of evil. The word for acknowledge, they do not acknowledge me, says the Lord, is the Hebrew word yada. We wanted to put that definition on the screen for you tonight. A verb meaning to know, to learn, to perceive, to discern, to experience, to confess, to consider, to know people relationally, to know how, to be skilled, to make known. To make oneself known, to make to know. Because they were not valiant 
for the truth. I'm talking the absolute truth. I'm talking about when you discover something that you know, that you know, that you know comes from the word of God and is rooted in the character of the Lord. I'm talking about an experience that you have with God Almighty that changes you. It changes that evil inclination that you had or that you're struggling with. And drawing close to the Lord and crying out for His truth. Oh, that your truth would be in me, Lord. Oh, that I would discover your truth. And in meeting you in that place of desperation. That's what we're talking about tonight. Read James 1, verse 22 with us. Because this is surely a place where the truth of God is being proclaimed. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. You should recognize this because we read this last week. We wanted to touch on it again because it's so important. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Where is that truth found, church? It's found in the perfect law that brings freedom from the evil inclination and freedom from the bondage that sin wants to keep you under. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. Verse 26 is an interesting connection. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Look, anyone who just listens, anyone who just hears, anyone who just has a knowledge in their head but doesn't do what it says is not valiant for the truth. It takes listening, understanding, and going after it with all of your heart to be valiant for the truth. And define the freedom that Christ brings. Truth is gained when we put it into action. Are you guys hearing that? It's not just truth is gained when we understand what the word says. Truth actually comes alive in a revelatory kind of way. When we put what we know into action. Truth springs into life inside of us. The person who listens to the word. But does not put it into action. They won't experience. They won't know. They won't acknowledge. They will not learn. They will not yada have an experience with God. The problem that we're pointing back to in Jeremiah's day, it was a problem of the worst type. Religious people who are taught to say the right things, yet they don't know their God. And it shows up in what they do with their life. Oh, come on now. This is something we can easily place anywhere we would like. Religious people who do not do what they say. But let's be real with this for a moment with our friends and family. It wasn't that they didn't know the truth. The men and women in this room are better educated in the word of God than almost any seminary you will walk into anywhere in the world. I know that because I visited a few and it was rather disappointing. And men in this room have dedicated your life to knowing the truth. But you all know that moment when you knew the truth, but you weren't valiant for it. You settled for being aware of it rather than being courageous enough to put it into action, to speak of it, to walk in it. There's a distinct difference between knowing the truth and being a man who's valiant for the truth. 
Look, we live in days of Jeremiah where you're going to have to learn to be valiant for the truth, not simply possess it. James 3:11 through 12 says, "Can both fresh and salt water flow from the same spring?" My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring, a salt spring produce fresh water. The clear point is that you cannot be both. That although a salt water spring may know something of what it's like to be a fresh water spring, you cannot possess both and produce both. Any amount of salt added to the wellspring that is your life makes you salt water. If a fig tree is staring at an olive tree and it has an idea of what its fruit looks like, of how its leaves interact with the sun and produce life, that doesn't make it an olive tree or a fig tree. It has to produce what the other does. Our actions are the indicator of what we actually are, whether or not we're valiant for the truth. They are the indicator to the world and the indicator to God of who we are on the inside. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees? Why every other chapter, the Sadducees are being rebuked, then the Pharisees, and it's like an alternating match? It's because religious wickedness is the worst kind of wickedness. The kind that dresses itself up and says, I am righteous, while all the while not being valiant for the truth. Lost people... You at least know what you're getting. You have an idea of what you're interacting with. You know they will do what is in their best interest. And it's predictable. What makes religious wickedness so difficult is that we say one thing and then do another. All the while, it's in the name of Christ. One thing to remember is that you always know a tree or a spring by its fruit. No matter where they come from or what they say. Don't be deceived by sly-sounding words. We live in a day where men wish to give you what you want to hear, to itch your tickling ears. A man who is valiant for the truth can be seen as righteous in the display of his actions, and it will show up in his family and those he is responsible for, because he knows the Lord. He's interacting with the Lord, and he's becoming like them. Now, both Jeremiah and Jesus had to deal with this problem. Men who spoke one thing, but did not actually act in a righteous manner. It's a good thing that that has gone away entirely by our age and time. It was just Jesus and Jeremiah, wasn't it? Hey, why don't we pick up in four and we'll read down to six. Right before we do that, just for a little bit of clarification before we move on. Valiant does not mean sitting and soaking. Valiant does not mean positioning yourself in a place where you can hear clearly, or hear well. Valiant means that you're doing all of those things, but you are also strongly and courageously pursuing the truth of God to the detriment of yourself. That is the definition of being valiant for the truth of God's word. It means that you're standing in a situation and it does not matter what the opposition says and it doesn't matter what kind of outside pressures you're experiencing. Being valiant for the truth of God's word means you're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that truth is not slandered or misrepresented in any way because we know who we represent, and that is God Almighty. Trisha's going to pick up with us after we read 4 through 6. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver, and every friend a slanderer. 
friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sin. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Man, beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. Sounds like somebody's got the wrong friends, don't they? Look, Jeremiah is facing a problem here. And it's the same problem that a famous first century rabbi had. It comes from Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Jesus said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Man, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? I thought he's the king of peace. I thought he's the prince of peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not hard to understand, is it? (laughs) A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You know, if we just leave it right there, I think that is the big obstacle that many have to Christianity. Is they see it as a religion that stirs division within family members. Because it does. But Jesus picks up here in verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me. Man, do you love your sons and daughters? Yes. Yes. But if you love them more than Jesus, you're not worthy of Jesus. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is listing the right priorities that every believer is supposed to have. The truth is, familial relationships can be so deceptive. Whether they're good familial relationships or obviously bad familial relationships, they can be deceptive because they pull a little bit at your heartstrings. But when we're talking about wicked family members, it can be deceptive because they can mask their hearts with tribal knowledge of the word. They can just simply quote things that they've heard like, isn't Jesus supposed to be loving? Well, don't judge lest you be judged. Don't twist scripture lest you be like Satan. (laughs) They can mask it with religious speech, talking about peace and unity and flattering actions like buying you gifts or paying for your gas or paying for your car payment or paying for anything else that you should not be letting them pay for. But when you're dealing with religious people, the actual word of God brings division. Now, I'm not just talking about quoting a scripture that seems to fit. When you're sharing the actual word of God that they need, it is like a sword that comes and cuts in between them. It brings division because they don't like the word of God. It judges their own thoughts and intentions. The sad thing is that this should be a friendly audience for us. Our family should be the first that listen to us. Our family should be the first that look at us and say, man, I have seen you change. What is going on in your life? But they also should have been a friendly audience for Jesus and Jeremiah as well. And yet what happened? This is what happens to every prophet who actually wielded the word of God. Every prophet that was valiant for truth in every situation, every prophet that applied it, this is what happens to them. Become more like Jesus and you'll save the world? No, become more like Jesus and they'll put you on a cross. What was supposed to be a friendly and receptive environment to their message 
became religious persecution and flattering excuses. This is the norm for Christianity. Whenever you share the word of God with your family, if they are not totally valiant for the truth like you are, it will cause division between you and them. Be careful not to become comfortable with those types of relationships. Otherwise, you might find yourself on the other side, not valiant for the truth and just going for the flow. And let's pick up in verse 7. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine them and test them. But what else can I do because of the sin of my Can you imagine the Lord speaking and saying, what else am I going to do with my people? What else can I do? I'm going to refine them. I'm going to test them because what are my other options? The Lord is saying, I have no other options. Mm -hmm. My only option for my people is to refine them, to test them, to get them to a place where they are purified again, that I can restore them. Hebrews chapter 6 speaks about this. Verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. Isn't that true? Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that countless times. I swear on my mama's grave. <laughs> and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end on the argument. Oh man, that dude swore on his mother's grave. He must be telling the truth. <laughs> hey, what does it do? It puts an end to all argument. There's no argument anymore when God's swearing on himself. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, Amen. we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. So we're talking about two unchangeable things here that are causing the Lord to say what he said in these verses. What else can I do? These two things are his unchanging nature. The fact that he is exactly who he says that he is, and he is greater than anybody else in the entire universe. And secondly, the fact that because of that character, he is not a man that he is, should or is even able to lie. According to these two things, God cannot completely destroy Israel because of what he's promised them, because of the covenant that he's given to them, he cannot completely destroy them. So he says, what else can I do? I'm going to refine them and I'm going to test them and I'm going to purify them so that I can rejoin with them in a pure state. Come on. Now we want to ask you something in this room. Husbands, wives, when you get into a situation with each other, that you're so grieved with each other, that your question is, what else can I do? Is that a, what else can I do? I'm just going to walk away and pray that maybe time will heal this situation? Or do you understand that like God with his nation Israel, you yourself made a covenant before God who does not change? You made a covenant before the Lord. What else can I do? Well, because of that covenant and because of who you represent, you have to refine them. 
You have to help them. You have to purify them and wash them with the water of the word because you made a covenant and a promise before God. You can't destroy them. Have to refine. This is true not just for your husbands and wives and spouses. It's true for your children. It's true for your ministry partners. It's true for ministries. You made a covenant before God. So the responsibility dictates that you help to refine. You wash in the word. You do not walk away, but you valiantly press forward with the truth to purify and refine, knowing that restoration is just around the corner. Both Jeremiah and God are clinching with the darkness of the situation. But they're saying what they are going to do about it. And that is what we also must do. Let's continue in verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks with deceit. With his mouth, he speaks poisonly to his neighbor. But in his heart, he sets a trap for him. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the desert, desert pastures. They are desolate and untraveled. Mm. The lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds of the air have fled and the animals are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will lay waste the towns of Judah so no one can live there. Now it's a certainty that he's going to refine them and not throw them away. But that does not mean that the vast majority of them are not going to die. In fact, most of them will. But he will always preserve a remnant. During Elijah's day, there were 7,000 that would not bow the knee to Baal. During the exile, there were men like Ezra and Nehemiah who possessed the word of God and would not give it up. Their restoration is a certainty. And their present judgment and destruction because of their sinful decisions is irreversible. No matter how much Jesus loves you, there are some things that are going to have a consequence. That's how this works, and it causes us to learn from prior decisions. But what we can do is recognize his goodness in the situation. Now listen, some of you may not notice something that I want to point out here. In the present, Jeremiah is surrounded by religious family and people that have prostituted themselves all the while pretending that they are righteous. You notice the parallels between Jesus and Jeremiah here. There's a kind of cloak and dagger that's going on. It started out, they, their tongue is a deadly arrow. They speak with deceit. That is, hey, everything's great. I'm here, I'm your friend. All the while, holding a weapon that they intend to harm you with. Reminds me of Joab. A couple instances where he struck down a family member while speaking kindness. You see verse 11? I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins and a haunt for jackals. Now, there should be a couple of Axe class students in the room where your mind is racing. But for the rest of you, when people are dealing in religion, but actually have a dagger and want to harm you at the end of the day, where religious speech is as far as they go in truth, they're not actually valiant for it, their home, their home is a haunt for jackals suggest to you that you would do well to spend a little time reading in the LXX. Perhaps you might find that this passage is referring to an evil remnant of Rephaim spirits. The clear import is that when you deal in lies and deceptions while cloaking it as religion, you become a home for condemned celestial entities that are bent on causing offenses. That are bent 
on terrorizing men and causing divisions. You, in fact, begin to live with what you have participated in. That's what the original audience would have understood. The question, though, for us who are standing in God's right order is how do we live between the events where judgment is certain but restoration hasn't come yet? Man, that time under tension can be brutal. When you know that dawn is coming, but there's still a lot of hours of night left. We want to suggest to you that the answer for the times that we live in is Daniel and the life that he lived. I'm going to read to you out of Daniel 6 and a couple passages, starting in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went to his home upstairs to his room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. All right, Bible scholars. What is the condition of Jerusalem in Daniel 6? It's been destroyed. The temple has been burned, broken down. What on earth would be the point of opening your windows towards a ruined city? There is no temple. But the man understood God's coming restoration, so he's praying in the same direction anyway. Three times a day, in fact, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he did before. Before what? Before the decree had been published. That he was not allowed to pray any longer to his God. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. We're going to pick up in 13 now. Then they said to the king, in reference to Daniel praying, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Saints, we're going to have to have a kind of holiness that is valiant for the truth. A holy defiance that says, this is where I must stand, and what I see in front of me makes no difference. I'm waiting for God's coming restoration. Whether it's in this life or the next, I will see it. Daniel did not wallow in pity and self-loathing. He lived with hope because he knew who his God was. The kind who could resurrect the dead, who could resurrect a city, and would resurrect his people. He prayed toward Jerusalem. This is a statement of faith that even in his own body, where he's placing his face, it's an act of defiance against all hope. He would pray where he knew God would put his name once again. That God would fulfill his promise. That it still stood and that he would restore the people to the land. It was incumbent upon Daniel to be faithful in a faithless time. And that's a word that we have got to get down in our souls. It was incumbent upon him to be faithful in a faithless time. Why? For the sake of those that were around him. So that some might learn God's justice when he would not bend and break and they falsely accused him anyway. And for other righteous men who took strength from it. Who learned to stand in their own testing in the fire, so to speak. Luke 21, 25 speaks further on this subject. Verse 25, there will be suns in the moon, signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Listen to this. Men will faint from terror. Man, if you think that's not going to happen, just turn on CNN News and you will see that happening today. (laughs) But this is speaking of a repeating cycle that started all the way back, happened in Daniel's time, and it's going to happen again. Men will faint from terror. 
apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads. Oh, come on. Because your redemption is drawing near. When these things begin, stand up and lift up your heads. Not when they're done. Not when the redemption's already here. But whenever you see them starting to happen, stand up, lift up your head. We cannot give in like Daniel. We can't give in to fear because of our circumstances. Come on. Redemption is coming. Why would you give in to fear when you have a great hope in God? We cannot fail to be faithful because of our surroundings. That is exactly what Jesus said will happen. The love of many will grow cold. But will there be any faithful left on the earth? We can't fail to become faithful because of our surroundings. i got to tell you that is all too easily happening all around us. Things get a little bit hard. The first thing that goes is faithlessness. Not the things in our life we're supposed to be getting rid of. Faithfulness leaves because of these surroundings. The truth is the surroundings are nearing our redemption if we stand firm. Your standing firm is actually bringing you closer to the redemption, not farther away from it. If you just stand till the end, you'll make it to the end. Romans 5, Paul commenting on the same theme says in verse 3, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Say rejoice. Rejoice. Because we know. Say we know. We know. Man, I got to ask, do you know? That suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, church, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. Man, that deposit sealed inside of you until that redemption comes. You see, at just the right time, say just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Come on. Now think of that. We have joy while suffering in a faithless, deceptive world. We can actually have that. We can have a tangible hope in the promises of God that they will not fail. You know how I know that? Because Israel had it. They still do have it. Jesus had it even before his crucifixion. We can have it in this church tonight. Now I want you to focus on verse 6. At just the right time. At just the right time. Say at just the right time. At just the right time. He will redeem us if we are faithful. Not the time you want it the most. Not the time you think it should happen, but if you're holding on in hope, if you're being faithful, then at just the right time for you and the world around you, he will come and redeem you. You just have to stand firm in your faith. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 12. Keep going. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? What man is wise enough? To understand this. Saints, we don't have a great deal of time to get into this tonight. But the word for wise is Strong's number 2450. It's the Hebrew word hakam. I'm sure most of you have heard that before. Come on. One of its primary uses has to do with being wise for salvation in the midst of adversity. It has to do with exactly what we've been talking about in these earlier verses. Now, if you want to... Check out the LXX. 
for a second and look, and it, we guarantee you that it will enlighten your studies as you look into this word and its application as it appears in the Greek. What the Lord actually considers to be wise is to be able to learn, practice, and teach others in a way that leads them to salvation. Wow. That really, to me, sounds like being valiant for truth. You can't do those things. You can't learn, practice, teach in a valiant kind of way without going after the truth in a valiant manner. Let's move on to verse 13. The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the bells as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make these people eat bitter food and drink poison water. Now, saints, I know we live in an environment where we try to look at a mistake, look at sin, look at a failure, and pretend it's more complicated than it actually is. When the reality of God's Word says that if we reject His law, you are robbing yourself of the blessing of God's law. If we refuse to keep His Word, then we will not reap the blessing of His Word. The people in Jeremiah's day, instead of blessing, God is going to make them do exactly what their forefathers in the desert did. Eat other food and drink poisonous water. Now God doesn't want them to have to drink poisoned food and water. He wants them to have food and water that descends from the heavens, that strengthens them. But their own wicked actions and decisions have brought them to this point. Look, on the note of biblical patterns and prophecy, Israel had to go through the waters of Marah, but what else did they come to in Exodus 15? They came to the 27th verse in Elium. There is a pattern working its way through the word where men are faced with the reality of their own disobedience, but it is what brings them to the restoration of God, and it's first and foremost for Israel, and we are grafted into it. Get verse 16. I will scatter them among the nations that neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. Now it's interesting to note that God says, other nations, I will scatter them among the nations. Hmm. He didn't say Babylon here, which is what is going to happen. Babylon's going to come take them into captivity. He says, I'm going to scatter them among the nations. Plural. Look, this wasn't the first time that this was spoken to Israel. In fact, Israel's history is scattered with being scattered. <laughs> it was promised to them beforehand. It's a repeating cycle. They were told in Deuteronomy that if they obeyed, they would be blessed and remain in the land. That was something like, oh, I don't know, a thousand years before that. When they disobeyed, they would be chastised and cast out, not as a means of punishment and, e and eternal disconnect from the people of God, but they would be chastised and cast out as a means of course correction. Amen. Look, Moses laid it out in the Torah. Solomon... And 2 Chronicles 6 prophesied about their expulsion and return, but it is most prominently displayed in the cycles of the judges. You see it over and over again whenever they would rise up, a, 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 a judge would rise up, and then they would go right back into captivity. This was and is a cycle over and over 
And in fact, I think we have a slide that shows you that. This is the cycle of the Shofetim, or the cycle of the judges, that we received whenever we were studying the book of Judges. When you see that first step at the top, 12 o'clock, it starts in restoration. Israel begins in a, a state where they are brought out of Egypt, brought into the land, and they are being restored with the land. But then the children of Israel fall into sin and idolatry. They succumb to rebellion in their lives. But then the Benai Israel, they were enslaved. Then becomes the retribution from God to them for their actions. But then they cry out to Yahweh. They see their retribution and they're going, hey, this is too tough. We need a savior. And God raises up a savior. Elohim raises up a judge. And then after he raises up a judge, then the repentance comes. And then they're delivered right back into restoration. And the process goes over and over. The cycle, I want you to notice that the cycle leads to something, though. And this is important. The cycle always leads to them crying out and being restored. This has always been a disciplinary cycle. This is not an indicator of, the, of God being done with them because there is a cycle. This is an indicator that they will always cry out after God raises up a judge. They will always cry out to him and he will always restore them. But you know, lest you think this only happens to Israel, I want you to check out this next slide. This is by a guy named Teitler. And this is his secular study into the cycle of history. You see how every civilization, as he claims, starts out in bondage. Man, think of our country. Our country started out in bondage by those evil Brits that taxed our tea and all kinds of stuff. But then it leads into spiritual faith. Then that leads into the courage to throw off our oppressors. And that brings liberty. Man, liberty is a great thing, right? Yeah. Man, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh. But that brings something that is a little bit deceptive. And it's called abundance. Yeah. And abundance is a Trojan horse, so to speak, because it leads you into selfishness. Yeah. Man, isn't it interesting to note that the more you have, the more selfish you become. Yeah. You would think if you had less, you would be less selfish, but that's not true. <laughs> selfishness leads us into complacency. And then complacency leads us into apathy because we have everything we need and need nothing else. Then apathy leads us right back into, into dependence on foreign powers, like how I said that. And then dependence brings us right back into bondage and it starts over again. Man, can you see that cycle uh, over and over happening into the, the nations of the world and happening in our nation yeah. over and over again? It happens to every Gentile nation. Yeah, true, sir. I think we're right there, maybe somewhere around that apathy dependence stage yes. right now. Yeah. Guess what's coming? Bondage. Bondage. Yeah. Did you get your stimulus check yet? Yeah. Anybody get that 1400 yet? Yeah. Just wondering. Look, this happens in our nation because I want you to get something. You know why this happens on a national level? Because it happens in a personal level inside of us. Yes. You see, we make up the nation. The nation doesn't make us up. Last week, we talked about breaking the cycle in our lives. You guys get something good from that? Yes. We're going to break the cycle. But this cycle shows up in discipline in us as we course correct to break it. 
The reason why this cycle is showing up over and over again is to train you to discipline yourself <coughs> to break the cycle. Come on. And I promise you, if you get over and over that circle over and over again, you get tired of going back into bondage, don't you? Yeah. This is supposed to be a teacher, almost like God has uh, given us over to what we want so that he might have mercy on us. This is supposed to be a teacher to you. So we're going to pick up in verse 17 through 19, but you would do well to remember that cycle and ask yourself, what part of that cycle am I in? Am I in the dependent stage? Well, you know where you're going next. If you're in the bondage stage, you know what you need to go to next. If you're in the abundance stage, you need to know what you have to be careful against. Amen? Amen. All right, 17 through 19. Most of you in the room know me very well. And I'm sure what you were expecting me to want to key on this evening was wailing women. 
Why didn't he tell them to have joy? Why didn't he tell them to shout hallelujah and turn from their wickedness? It's because mourning, weeping, and repentance over their actual state is necessary to break the cycle that they've been a part of. There is no moving back to joy, no moving back to abundance, no moving back to God without the breaking that causes mourning and weeping. If you feel differently about the matter, consider the fact that God told them to hire professional mourners. Yeah. It wasn't their response. He said to do it. Yeah. It's because he knew what they needed. Look, we want to bring you to a familiar passage that you should consider in light of what we're reading in Jeremiah on a national as well as a personal level. Matthew 5, 1 through 10. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So listen, do me a favor and knock the church off for just a minute. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I want to mourn? How many of you said, I want to be poor in spirit? How many of you men said, I want to be defined as being meek? Hungry? How about thirsty? I see you with your big jug of water in the back. You don't want to go three minutes without having water. It says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to mourn. I guarantee you these people didn't come to Jesus asking for teaching and be expecting to hear that they needed to mourn. They didn't walk up wanting to hear that they needed to weep. But Jesus, just like Jeremiah, knew in the moment this is what they needed to be free from sin. That regardless of what the world around them was telling them, this is what would bring them to the kingdom of heaven. This would, would bring them to the comfort of God. This is how they would inherit rulership of the earth. This is how they would be filled with righteousness, real and lasting change. This is how they would receive mercy. You can't get there any other way, church. We want to just brush sin off to the side, pretend like it didn't happen, say that we're sorry, and then immediately move on. But in God's eyes, you will not inherit mercy. You will not inherit the kingdom. You will not find his comfort through those means. The bitter difficulty of a poor spirit, of a mourning, of a submission to God, of a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is what produces a sweetness, a pure heart, that you can see the living God. So that you can be like the Son of God. You agonize over the cost of righteousness in your daily life? Are you engaged in preaching his word and living an example that costs you something? Listen, the context in Jeremiah tonight is not about standing for righteousness. It is about feeling the effects of sin and having to mourn because you did wrong. But saints, that's not what we're called to, although you may identify with it very strongly this evening. We're called to agonize over the cross itself because it's right to do, even though it hurts. Not suffer for sin. 
Are you pressed in prayer? Because God's will for your life and for your family's life is hard. To that you were called, saints. We were not called to have prayers that God might bless you a little more tomorrow. You were called that God might crush you as he crushed his son. That's real Christianity and I don't care what someone else told you. Jesus and Jeremiah both had the same solution for a sinful cycle. The sinful cycle that we see in the Shofetim that Moses spoke about, that Solomon prophesied about. It was being baptized in your own weakness and learning to mourn over it that you could be restored to a righteous condition. Our church and our nation must embrace this if we're going to rise to become who God has called us to be. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now I want you to really hear that because many of you are familiar with this passage in talking about the resurrection. But I want you to hear something. The body that is sown perishable. That means it's weak. That means it it can die. It can get tired. It is raised imperishable. The body that is sown in dishonor. But wait, don't we like honor? Don't we like to be honored all of the time? Sow me in dishonor, Lord. Don't we like to show up at church events and have everybody say, man, it's good you're here. If your body is sown in dishonor, though, it is raised in glory. If your body is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. But I want to be powerful now. We have entire groups out there that just try to present themselves as more powerful. How to become a powerful man of God. We should be trying to become more and more inclined to our weaknesses and agonizing through them so that we can be raised in power at that time. The body that is sown a natural body, not a latex-injected body, a natural, bearing the marks of Christ body. It is raised a spiritual body. Second Corinthians 13.4 says, For to be sure, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. Man, many theologians talk about the triumph of the cross, the great captain of our faith. But Second Corinthians says he was crucified in weakness. How many of you want a calling like that? He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. We do have a calling like that. We are called to be crucified in weakness and yet live by God's power. Come on. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. We want to ask the question, why is mourning so important? Because God uses those who understand their position to change them and shame those who do not under their, understand their positions. That is why mourning and weakness is so crucial to walking this life with Christ. If you understand your position, God will use you, change you, empower you to affect the world and show everybody else their circumstance. I want you to think of this on Jewish and Gentile terms. As Gentiles, we are only here in this promise because we understood our position. That's the only reason the Gentiles can come into the promise. Because we understood our position. And that is how we were able to come to him. We were strangers, aliens, not citizens with him. And we realized that. 
The truth is he's going to do that for Israel. But you want to know how you want to know uh, the certainty of that? The proof is that he did it for you. you he did it for you. If he did it for you, then he will do it for them as well. The key is we have to learn to live a life like Judah was talking about, a life of carrying the cross, not throwing it off and trying to pretend to be one of the guards standing by it. Man, we're, we're going to learn how to mourn through our condition, right? Yeah. Not hide it. Not try to stand up and puff our chest like nothing happened. We're going to learn to actually bear up under it, and that is how God will raise us in power. Wow. Amen. Wow, these next couple verses, 23 and 24, when you've gone through that process of mourning over your own condition, having an encounter, a valiant encounter with the truth and going after it with all of your heart, then something happens. You're able to do something for the first time out of a pure heart where it actually brings glory to the God that you serve. Listen to these two verses. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in thee I delight, declares the Lord. What, 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 what can you boast about? Boast about the fact that you are pursuing God and that you are gaining an understanding of Him every day. You're gaining experiential knowledge about the King of Kings every day. Boast about what He is showing you in the Word. Boast about your understanding and your intimacy with the King of Kings. These are things that last forever, that as you rise in His strength and in His power, you can boast about these experiences that you're having with Him. Understanding and knowing Him. These Hebrew words, shakal, yada, we've mentioned one earlier. We want to go into these, but first we want to read a parallel passage. You guys want to do this? Yeah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 12. Listen to the similarities as Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. We do not dare to classify... Or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Why do you think they're commending themselves? Because they're ignorant. Because they haven't been close with God Almighty. So they think what they have accomplished and what they're into is more important than what He is directing them toward. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. You, you know, the things that you accomplish on a daily basis without the Lord and without His power, without His direction, it seems really good when you're looking to your left and your right and you're comparing them with other people. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, look what I accomplished today. And then you have an encounter with the character in the presence of God. Come on. Then you have an encounter in the Word where you're reading something and it jumps off of the page and you're like, oh my goodness. I did not consider that. Yeah. I, did, I didn't have this knowledge before this moment. And the Lord opens up your mind, and all of a sudden, the things you thought you could boast about, well, they become not important anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. They just kind of fall by the wayside as you get this revelation. Listen to how Paul applies this. Verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limit. Man, that's good. But we but will confine our boasting 
to the field God has assigned to us. Who's that field exactly? A field that reaches even to you. So, So Paul is looking at Men who he has discipled. He's looking at men who he has sown revelation into. He's looking at familial relationships. And he's saying, hey, if I could boast about anything, I can boast about what the Lord's doing in your life. I can boast about the things that I am seeing from this side of the room. I can boast about the things that I'm seeing from this side of the room. I can boast about these things because it's only accomplished by God and what he can do in a life. It's yeah. only accomplished by starting at the beginning of the process of being poor in spirit and mourning over your state without him so that he would change you and bring you to a place of strength and courage and power in him. Yeah. Amen. Verse 15, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand. Say greatly expand. Greatly Greatly expand. expand. So that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. But, Jeremiah quote right here, Mm -hmm. let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Come on. Any man can boast about the things he has. The things he does. Without that experience of the Lord, it seems right until it's not. Those that truly know the Lord and do not resort to boasting about shallow, finite, temporary trash, they make an impact <coughs> on the world around them. That's what Paul's boasting was focused on. It's what It was the centrifugal item that he was able to boast about what the Lord was doing in the people around him. They will gain an area of activity like a house, like a nation. They will learn to know the Lord as well. They will learn to know and understand who he is. Jesus and Jeremiah both walked in this and had their area of impact. Will you? (laughs) Will you be able to walk in this? Will you be able to have your area of impact? Will you have your experiences with the Lord and faithfully transfer those experiences and your valiant pursuit of truth to someone else around you? Come on. Absolutely you will because that is what you are called to in Christ. The secret to this is, is that as your faith grows, your ministry grows, the area of activity that you're touching with the Lord's hands through you, it grows. It greatly increases as you put this into practice. So saints, we want to encourage you for just a moment. You can and you will grow into what the Lord is calling you to. Yeah. But just like the salt and fresh water, you have two choices. What you will be able to boast in is determined by what you walk in, and you will not have both. He will not share his glory with another. Yeah. Caleb Brown and his family are a family that will be able to boast in what God has done. I'm looking at other families in here that will do the same as you continue to let your life be refined and be valiant for the truth. Listen, we want to read 25 through 26, which is going to round out chapter 9, and then we are going to jump headlong into chapter 10. <coughs> to round out 25 and 26 for me, Linton. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, 
Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So Deuteronomy 5, as we began this passage, said that, oh, that their hearts would be inclined. This was the original intent of the law, to incline man's heart towards God. Nothing was ever wrong with the law. It only pointed to uncircumcised hearts. If you find something that we're saying is offensive, it's pointing towards an uncircumcised heart. God's word is a mirror that reveals who we are. But Ezekiel 36 also says that he's going to change the hearts of the nation of Israel and we can participate in that exact same promise. We do not have to stay as we are. Now the nations that Judah was just listed with, these nations possess ancient hostilities against the Lord, against his land, and against his people. Also his plan. But because of Judah's behavior, they've just been grouped in a list of nations that are enemies of God. Wow. I want you to consider for a moment how shocking this must have been if you were hearing Jeremiah's prophecy. If you were the average Jew sitting there, and he's saying, you are uncircumcised in heart and are going to receive my judgment just like all of my enemies. Wow. The son was just placed on the list of the enemies of the king. Yeah. Come on. That was designed to get their attention. They were placed there Because their religious formality had corrupted them. And despite all of their words and profession, they were wicked at heart, uncircumcised at heart. It's never been about confessing the right thing. It's never been about projecting the right thing. It has always been about the nature of a circumcised heart, a man that was made new in his actions as well as his inner being. We would do well to hear that tonight. As men that are specially set apart, you were redeemed. You were born again and taken out of the filth that you came from. You absolutely can be placed on the list of God's enemies if you refuse to circumcise your heart and use fig leaves, religious speech, as a cover for evil. But that's not who we are or what we will be. Look, as we get into chapter 10, you're going to begin to see What happens when the chosen people have become like the nations around, like the nations we just read about? God appeals to them to make a distinction, just as he has made a distinction from all of the other gods around. His call is, be like me. I'm distinct in who I am. I am holy and I am righteous. Do what I am doing and I will rescue from this. Brother Linton, pick up in chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the sky. Though the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of forest, and a craftsman shapes it with this chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be Do not learn the ways of the nations. This is Jeremiah laying out the worthlessness of every other ancient path. Every other ancient path, but the one good way is absolutely worthless. Man, 
Now, he's talking about the actual totems here, the, the ones that are cut out of a tree in the forest, the craftsman shapes it with his chisel. God is warning the people not to engage in this kind of behavior because there is a harm that can be done. Now you ask, what harm can a wooden totem do? What is this thing going to do to me? Well, the actual piece of wood or the actual idol, it might not actually do you any harm. It might actually be the power that's behind that thing that can do some harm. Pick up in verse 6 and you're going to see God to start key, keying into this kind of language. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Yeah. Who should not revere you? O king of the nations, this is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. So you have all these idols and wooden totems and things like that. But then you have Jeremiah calling out to Israel to the uniqueness of his bridegroom. Look, you can either serve all of these wooden, made-by-men things, or you can come to the Lord that no one is like. You can come to the Lord who is great. You can come to your husband whose name is mighty in power. Amen. Now the people of Israel ought to be able to stop and go, Oh, you're, you're right. <laughs> Man, throw away the wooden idols. I want to go to the king of nations. I want to go to that kind of king. And yet Jeremiah has to call out to this uniqueness because they've lost it. Man, how important is it not to lose the uniqueness of your king? Don't lose the uniqueness of your husband, O oh bride. Don't lose the wonder in your eyes when you look at the king of kings and all of his character. Jeremiah has to remind them, this is your real husband, not these worthless things. He is due the worship that you give him. These idols, they don't deserve anything, but this God actually is due the worship that you give him. Man, that changes the way we show up on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Yeah. Showing up to a God that's actually worthy yeah. of the, the worship that we can give. Man, that, that'll preach right there. Yeah. That'll make you want to break out a guitar and just declare his name right now. Hey, pick up in verse 8. <laughs> they are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from the past. What the craftsman and goldsmith has made in there is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, there are trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this, these gods who do not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. I love the contrast that are being presented here in these verses of Jeremiah. Absolutely love it. The true God. God Almighty. He's the living God. When he's angry, the earth trembles. When he expresses emotion, all of his creation is affected by it. The nations themselves, they cannot endure the wrath of this God. This is the same God that made the heavens and the earth. I love the contrast in this passage. Let's go back to these totems for just a second. We're not talking about destroying wooden objects. We're not talking about physically destroying these uh, gods, whether large or small. We're talking about the Lord God Almighty coming and destroying the gods that these totems represent. The physical image, it has a representation. That representation 
is what God is going to come and lay waste to. They didn't create the earth. They don't have any responsibility for creating man or breathing breath into his lungs. They cannot endure the wrath of God Almighty. One thing that we wanted to highlight here, the Lord God, as he describes the guilt, it's coming from the earth and it's going upward. The guilt is rising from the earth and it's rising into the heavens. But when the judgment comes, it says that the judgment comes from the heavens and descends upon the earth. So there's an interesting progression that we saw in several places in the word. But let me highlight Isaiah 34, 4 through 5 for you. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. You see, when Messiah returns and his armies with him, there is already going to be a judgment to be had in the heavens before he even touches his people Come on. on the earth. Come on. Judgment yeah. begins in the heavens. But from the top down, he will come down in his armies with him to bring judgment on this physical planet and to lay waste to all of his enemies. That being said, you guys ready to continue? Yeah. Let's continue in verse 12. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. Oh, come on. Say it again, Linton. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens Mm. by his understanding. Man. He thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouse. I'm just going to say real quick, when you finally realize in a moment how stupid idolatry is, and then you focus on what you can be worshiping, man, that changes everything, doesn't it? Man, he made the earth by his power and founded the world by his wisdom. This is an incredible statement from Jeremiah, one that's been repeated throughout the scriptures many times. But this forms kind of God's basis for judgment here. God is about to judge them and he's warning them, I'm going to judge you for the idols that you worship. But you know on what basis I'm going to judge you for? I am the creator of everything. I made the earth by by my power. I founded the world by my wisdom. You see God's basis of judgment on the earth? And the heavens is that he made the earth and the heavens. His basis for judgment is it belongs to him. I want to refer to an excerpt from the Discipleship Helps book. Man, Discipleship Helps is amazing, isn't it? We learned this Friday three amazing men of God taught on the supremacy and oneness of God. What a topic, isn't it? I want you to listen to what's written into our Discipleship Helps book that is in every house in this church. The supremacy and oneness of God. Understanding God as creator and sustainer. Not only did he create everything, he sustains it daily. Everything's moving because he's working at sustaining it. That is essential to understanding his supremacy. You ask, what does supremacy mean? It means he's supreme. He's first. He is the best. That is key to understanding his supremacy, which is is intimately bound to his oneness. The Bible teaches us that Yahweh, 
The God of Israel is the only, say only, only. Unique. unique, one God. He alone is the supreme being. The scriptures are replete with this truth. For example, Deuteronomy 4.39 proclaims, acknowledge, man, acknowledge, and take to heart this day that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. There was no other God with him when he created everything. Come on. There's no other God with him right now helping us to sustain it. When he created the heavens and the earth, there was no one nor any God with him. That means he alone is supreme over all creation because he was there from the beginning. He is the sole owner of everything that has, is, and will be. He's the owner of it all. And he can do with it whatever he wants because he's supreme. And he judges or blesses as he sees fit. That's what the supremacy of God means. Come on. Look, I'm going to hand out a few passages, and these brothers are going to comment on them. Marlon, you get Leviticus 25, 23 through 24, and that scripture ought to be ringing a bell in some ears in this room. Yeah, Acts 2, you got your ears open? Leviticus 25, 23 is going to be that first passage. Uh, Paul Rosales, you're going to get Daniel 4. 34 through 35. And uh, Nick Rosales, you're going to read Jeremiah 51, 16. Uh, Leslie, you're going to get Revelation 1, 15. And then we're going to jump right back into Jeremiah. But there's something you've got to get in your soul about the supremacy of God. And we're going to get it. Amen? Amen. Amen. So read Leviticus 25 when you get there. Marlon has an excellent translation tonight. I'm not knocking it. But let me put this in some more basic terms. The land is mine, not yours. So you cannot permanently sell it. You're an alien and you're a renter on my land. He promised them the land, said it was their inheritance, and they fought for it. Come on. But then he tells them, and the land is mine, and you are mine. You live here. But you don't have the right to do something other than what I said to do with it. It's your house, Marlon. It's your house. But you must not sell my house. You are a renter and you are a tenant here. Listen, the entire earth was created by God. We say that we built something. There's tradesmen in here. You assemble pieces. He caused the tree to grow. He built the mountains that you mined what you needed for concrete out of it. 
The idea that you built something is a bit foolish. Yeah. You put together a kit that God created and handed to you. Specifically, out of all of the earth, there's a very specific land that he deals even more personally with. That is the land and the territory of Israel. Come on. And his people in his land must conduct themselves as he sees fit on his property. But the point being, everything belongs to the supreme and eternal creator who both made the earth and the heavens. You'll see this point driven in as we turn to Daniel. Who is Daniel 4? Verse 34 and 35. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High, and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Oh, yeah. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven Come on. and the inhabitants <laughs> yeah. of the earth. Come on. Right. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same king that was sent by the Lord during Jeremiah's time. Do you see what he's saying about the Lord God Almighty? Do you see the words that he's proclaiming? You know, it was interesting and it's impactful to to figure out what Nebuchadnezzar was doing before he got this revelation. What God Almighty had reduced him to before he got a revelation of who God actually was. He was reduced to an animalistic type of state. Mm -hmm. His understanding was not there. His knowledge was not there. He crawled around like an animal because he assumed ownership over himself. He assumed ownership over the land that he stood on. He assumed ownership over the land that was over here that he felt like he wanted. You see, Nebuchadnezzar made a crucial mistake. He thought the things that the Lord had loaned into his hands belonged to him. That'll preach, won't it? Yeah. Man, that's a word, isn't it? Yeah. It's only after he humbled himself in an animalistic state. The Lord helped him a little bit. But he got to the point where he understood, I have no power by my own right hand. Help you too. I, I have absolutely no ability to produce. I can't heal myself. Yeah. I'm in a state of desperation, and it's time for me to cry out. And when he actually cried out, what he cried out was, God, you are the king of the universe. God, there is none like you. God, you do everything that you please. Lord, you have armies in the heavens and on the earth who will do your bidding. Yeah. When you say, I'm going to do this with my hand, no one can hold it back. We need to have that same status, that same revelation, that same attitude with what the King of Kings has placed into our hands to use for his kingdom. Come on. Listen, as we go to Jeremiah 51, Nick mentioned it earlier, but we want to remind you that the historical context of Jeremiah is Nebuchadnezzar. So the man who was the instrument of God's wrath during Jeremiah's day was learning that neither the one being disciplined nor the disciplinary tool escape God's dominion. Jeremiah 51, 16. Read it loud and proud as soon as you get there. 
When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the end of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. We want to put this briefly, succinctly, because I think you're getting the point, and there's a larger point we would like to get to. His power, his dominion, his voice is unmatched, and it affects the heavens and the earth. In fact, they tremble at his word. Yeah. Let's read Revelation 1.15 and see if you hear something familiar. His feet were like bronze going in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Oh, yeah. So reading Revelation 1.15 alone doesn't make much sense, does it? His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. I mean, what does that mean? But when you read it, on the basis of what is written in Jeremiah 51, when he thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It's predicated on a wealth of scriptural background. At his voice, the heavens and the earth shudder because he is the one supreme creator of the universe. The owner, the judge, and the one and only that everything must answer to, whether in the heavens or on earth. The judgment that was being pronounced to the people of God in Jeremiah's day is the same judgment that's being pronounced in this passage in Revelation, except it's not just happening to Israel. It's happening to the whole world. Come on. The question is, is if it happened to Israel, what would be the outcome of the wicked in that day? It is going to be a day where even the great captains are going to cry out for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb. That is going to be both an awesome and terrible day, will it? Yes. Come on. Hey, let's pick up in verse 14, and we are going to get a pace going. Yeah, we're going to go through 16 and though. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They have no ruach in them. They have no breath. They have no life in them. Keep reading. They are worthless. The objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. Wait a second. If they have no ruach in them, they have no breath, they have no life, they have no spirit. But when judgment comes, they will perish. Then maybe we actually are talking about the powers that are behind these totems and these idols. The powers behind them will perish and breathe no more. He will take their breath away. 16. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Oh, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. He is not like them, but Jeremiah, he's expounding on something, something that was previously said, maybe a long time ago, maybe in the Torah, maybe the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, maybe verse 8. Well, Jeremiah, he's taking Deuteronomy 32, and he's doing something, Acts 1 students. He's beginning to string pearls in his own dissertation in this chapter. And the pearls are coming from Deuteronomy 32. We're actually going to start in verse 16. They made him <coughs> jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons. Wow, that's an interesting... Uh, right there, which are not God. Gods that had not known, gods that had recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. Skip down to 41. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, 
I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Jeremiah is stringing these pearls straight from Deuteronomy 32. He's talking about how the Lord will judge his adversaries, how these adversaries are enemy leaders. In Greek, this is the word for archons. After these things come to pass, the Lord will bring restoration and he will bring atonement for the people and the land because the people, the land, and the plan are inextricably linked. Amen. So let me remind you of something, just so we don't miss the larger point. The book of the law was found during Josiah's reign. Where does Jeremiah's ministry start? The reign of Josiah. So Deuteronomy was found as Jeremiah is beginning to preach. It was read to the entire nation, and they weeped and they repented. Now Jeremiah, rather than copying all of 32, Deuteronomy 32 into the text, is explicitly quoting it, expecting them to know the content. Like referencing someone from your favorite movie, whom we tend to be much more familiar with than the scripture, knowing that you will get the plot line, you will get the characters in that story. And in Deuteronomy 32, they were worshiping idols that were demons, but they believed they were gods that could help them, and God was saying, I'm going to bring judgment both on those powers and the men who served them. This is the context for Jeremiah, and he's weaving it together because he knows and understands the scripture. Let's pick up in verse 17, and Brother Linton, I'm going to interrupt you often, but we're going to go all the way down to verse 23 together. Gather up your belongings to these land, you who live underneath. For this is what the Lord says, at this time I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. Leviticus 18.28 says that the land would vomit them out. And that there would be a coming day of restoration. That it was not permanent, but this is how he would correct his people to ensure they arrived at a holy and pure goal. What else can I do? What else can I do but refine my people? Get verse 19 and 20. Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness and I must endure it. My tent is destroyed. All its ropes are snapped. My sons are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. You remember when we began? Oh, that their hearts were inclined. You could hear the emotion of the prophet. Last week we read a declaration that the people had an incurable wound. Jeremiah was saying, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no restoration? Speaking about them. Now in this passage, Jeremiah is speaking and he is declaring that he has an injury. That he has an incurable wound. He is probably the most righteous man in all of Israel at this moment. And yet he is the one confessing. He is feeling what God feels. And he is under the weight of his own burden of sin. And theirs. He's taking responsibility for it. He's bearing up under the condition of his own people, and he is declaring the disaster and the need for repentance. Saints, this is like Jesus in so many ways. 
Jeremiah is bearing up under the sin of his people despite the fact he's the most righteous man in the nation at this moment. He is feeling the wound. He is feeling the pain and the unbearable sin. You know, Paul had some very similar experiences because the man knew the Lord. Romans 9, 2 through 5 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What did Paul do? Paul didn't do something wrong. He's bearing up under the weight of a sinful people. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Jesus and Jeremiah bore the sins of their people and experienced the difficulty therein. You hear Paul standing in the exact same way. When you consider this, does it mean that we could be indifferent? That we could stand idly by and say, well, that's your problem? No, No, we are people that are called to represent God in all of his glory, all of his emotion, in his pain, in his suffering, and in his resurrection power. Read verse 21 for me, Linton. Listen, when we have an individual that is breaking down, it affects the home and it affects the nation all the way up to national leadership. In this case, the shepherds of Israel are senseless because they have been broken down on a sinful individual level. The whole system has failed and collapsed. Now, we're watching these things and I don't want to comment on politics. I want to comment about your own family. Shepherds of the flock, what is the condition of your own home? That is the proof as to whether or not you have or have not rightly dealt with your own sin. It's time for us to rise up as the shepherds of God's flock and refine as needed. Not pad, not comfort, but refine. Pick up in 22 through 23, Brother Linton. Listen, the report is coming. A great commotion from the land of the north. I will make the towns of Judah desolate. A haunt for jackals. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. I will make the towns of Judah obsolete, a haunt for jackals. Again, Acts 2 students. That means a haunt for Rephaim. That means a dwelling for Rephaim. But there's something in verse 23 that, that we've just got to camp on for a little bit. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. That is one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible right there. It's precisely because we live in a time where we are taught to work hard for everything that you have. From a very young age, as men, we are taught to work for everything and then possess ownership over it and retire at a a good old age enjoying everything you've worked for. No man's life is really his own. doesn't matter if he's in Christ or if he's not in Christ. That's true to the whole world. He can't own his own life. He can't even decide when he is going to die. It is not for man to direct his steps. If you live like your life is your own, your life will fall apart. Your home will fall apart. And your nation 
will follow. Now, we say if you live like your life is your own. I mean, we're all in this church together, and we all are sacrificial and show up on Wednesdays and Sundays, and yay. When I say if you live like your life is your own, what I'm really getting at is there anything in your life that you're treating as your own? You know how to, how to answer that question? Is there anything in your life that you won't lay down for the king of kings? Is there anything in your life that you will not give up for a brother? Is there anything in your life that you try to hide so that no one else can know about it? That's what it's like to have something that you think is your own. If you live as though your life is not your own and doesn't belong to you, then you can build your life, your home, and you can impact a nation. If you live an entire life that is totally, totally free of any possession... Everything belongs to the Lord. Well, that's how you make an impact. Jeremiah here is a good example. He didn't partake in youthful frivolities. You remember when we shared about those things? He didn't get to partake in those things. He was never married. He was persecuted by his own family as well as the priesthood. He never went to the movies. He never had his own car where he can do whatever he want. He never had his own job where he can make money and buy whatever he wanted. His life was not his own. It belonged to the Lord. The Creator had a plan. The gods that are not the Creator tried to ruin that path, but the Creator had a plan. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I want you to listen really closely. Can you all do that? Yeah. Yeah. This is the thing that we wanted to camp on a little bit. Can I just borrow some of your time? You got it. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Now, I'm pretty sure about 95% of the people in the room that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because I've been there when you were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you didn't get that Holy Spirit by going out and buying it with money. God gave it to you. You received it from God. It is His Spirit in you. That means you are not your own. You were bought at a price. That price that Christ paid for you was his blood and his spirit that he put in you. Therefore, honor God with your body. I want you to know tonight that God has a double claim on your life. He created you. You wouldn't be here unless God pushed whatever button he had to push for you to be here. He created you. That that should be enough just to say that, shouldn't it? That he made you. But he has also saved and redeemed you. He had a singular claim on your life before. And you screwed it all up. And then he went out of his way to save and redeem you. That means he has a double claim on your entire life. Can we really say that anything belongs to us? Now, we're too smart to say that. Can we really act like anything belongs to us? Can we really act like our internet history belongs to us? Can we really act like our personal space in our homes belongs to us? Our food in the kitchen belongs to us? The money that we worked in belongs to us? Nothing belongs to us, church. God is funneling these things through your hands so that you can impact your life, your home, and your nation. Amen. Jesus said, whoever finds this life will lose it. If all you're seeking is to add to your own life. By the way, he said he would give you the abundant life. Right? But if you're ever trying to seek 
to reserve any part of your life, you will lose it. That'll happen in the moment. The thing that you're trying to preserve, you'll lose that. But if you walk in that attitude, you'll lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That applies to every area of your life as well. Lose everything that you think you own, and you will have everything that he owns at your disposal to impact your life, your home, and your nation. This is why as a corporate body, we are strengthening our lives, our home, so that we might affect the nation. That is why we are gathering as a church, going through these hundred days, so that God can place more things in your hand. How dare we think that those things belong to us? How dare we think that a specific night on a specific Saturday belongs to us? How dare we think that our certain teaching roles belong to us? They don't. It's for our lives, our home, and so that we might affect that area of the nations on the board behind me. Look, we're about at the balance of our time, but there are a few things we want you to have before we leave. We have a couple of verses left in it, and we have some slides and notes that will be made available to you. Given the fact that it's 934, we're going to hit the highlights of it. Can you hit the highlights with us? Yes. And then in your own time, study this out. We're going to put our first slide on the screen. These are examples in which Jeremiah and Jesus are the same. And as we are studying Jeremiah, we want you to notice the things that should be the same for you as Jeremiah and Jesus. This is our example. Both were known of God before their birth and discovered their mezuzah and had to walk it out. Both were men of sorrows. Both were God's instrument or his mouthpiece on the earth. Both were under divine protection and introduced and expanded the covenants of God on earth. Let's roll to our next slide. Both of these guys, people around them claimed that they were false prophets because they didn't like the message that they were preaching. Both described themselves as a lamb. Both called people to repentance. Come on. Both were hated by their own countrymen. We highlighted some of that with you tonight. Both were mocked. Both were scourged. And both were rejected by family. On our next slide, we see that both Jesus and Jeremiah spoke of Jerusalem's destruction. Both of them you think Jeremiah is the weeping prophet? Well, Jesus was the weeping prophet as well. Both of them wept for Jerusalem. Come on. Both of them warned people to flee the city. Both of them predicted its coming glory in the age to come. Both of them, the leaders tried to find fault in them. Both of them were given into the hands of men. Both of them were condemned to die by prophets. Priests and the people. Come on. Both were consented innocent blood, as we mentioned earlier. But you can see that in Jeremiah 26 and Matthew 27. Both Christ and Jeremiah were accused of being mad on multiple occasions. Both Christ and Jeremiah were men who stood in an authority that was not visible to mankind. And men asked... Who do you think you are, or where do you get this authority? (laughs) Both were mocked by their enemies as well as brothers. They experienced that suffering from both. And check out Jeremiah 20 and Luke 18. Both of them, with their brethren and enemies, 
were standing preaching the word of God while men were setting traps for them and waiting for their tongue to slip. And you think your workplace is hard, huh? <laughs> both of them were said to be worthy of death. All we know, both already were innocent blood. Both were defended by some righteous and courageous men. We're going to read about men like Baruch in the future. But they were in the vast minority. Both were put out of the land of the living by an enemy's desire. Jesus, quite literally, was put to death out of the land of the living by unrighteous men and enemies that were seeking to stop his ministry. In Jeremiah's case, he went out of Israel and was cast out of the land of the living to Babylon. Both were led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's really where we would like to center for just a moment. There are numerous things that are similar between the two of them. And as I stated earlier, the notes were available to you. But if both Jesus and Jeremiah, as our examples, were men who were led to the slaughter and didn't consider their own lives theirs, what does that mean that Christ is calling of us? Maybe it's not just the perfect son who had to lay down his life. It's every one of his servants that came before him or after him. Perhaps Christ is calling you now to lay down your image of your life. The areas that you believe are yours. To stand up and face the adversity that comes with actually standing with the word. Look, we can all quote cute, encouraging scriptures all day long and your family will love you. Your co-workers will love you. But when you rightly address someone's sin like a prophet, you're going to have the hatred that comes with being a prophet. Matthew 16, 12, actually maybe verse 14, it's copied in wrong, was one that particularly stood out to us. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Anybody recognize where this is from? Who do you say I am? And the biblically literate people of the time, although they had not had the revelation of Christ, Compared or thought, maybe it's John the Baptist, the guy who preached, repent, and had his head cut off. Maybe he's Elijah, who performed miracles, struck down enemies, raised up kings, and brought kingdoms to the ground with a message about the holiness of God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Or maybe, maybe he's Jeremiah, the guy who was preaching about the necessity of repentance with looming judgment ahead and standing with the people experiencing what the people were. Now, each of these assumptions were wrong, but they're certainly reasonable. They're certainly understandable. It's because these men lived lives that were like the Christ, and the Christ was like them. How much do you want to be associated with Jesus? (laughs) Does your life show that you uh, mostly want to associate with him when he's wearing his pretty clothing? When he's wearing his nice dress shoes, when he's got his suit on. Or do you want to be associated with Christ in dishonor? Associated with him in a message of repentance that's not accepted anywhere that you go. How much do you really want to be associated with him? Listen, we're going to read verse 24 and 25. And you're going to hear Jeremiah's internal wrestling. And how the almighty God strengthens him and shows him the future. A little bit like Asaph who was struggling and he felt like the wicked were prospering everywhere until he considered the outcome in the end. Brother Linton, get 24 and 25. 
Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. Jeremiah crying out, Correct me, Lord. Man, can't that be the cry of our hearts at times? Yes. Correct me, Lord. Yeah. Reminds me of that song, Light My Fire Again. <laughs> I need your discipline. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice. That's kind of scary, isn't it? What does that mean? Correct me, but only with justice. You see, the truth is, is if we all got justice, we'd be in pretty big trouble, wouldn't we? There's a Hebrew word here that you need to know about. The word justice, mishpat, and its Greek equivalent is referring to the promises made by God. It's the kind of justice that stands up in court when there is a decision, a promise there. It refers to the promises that were made by the judge. This is not the justice you think, like full weight of justice for every sin. This is Jeremiah saying, correct me, O Lord, but remember the promise that stands in your court. Remember the promise that you've made a long time ago. Lest you reduce me to nothing. Jeremiah is appealing to the covenant promises that God may deal with him according to the mercy he had on his father Abraham, as opposed to the nations that do not acknowledge him. Now, lest you think that God is done, this passage is about punishment on the nations that have led the people of God astray. Did you catch that? Pour out your wrath on the nations, for they have devoured Jacob. This is about punishment on those nations. But Jeremiah is crying out for wrath on the nations that devour Israel in this moment. But you know the one thing that Jeremiah is going to have to do? He's going to have to face that wrath himself. He's crying out for that judgment to fall on the nations. But he himself is going to experience that judgment firsthand. Have you read the book of Lamentations? (laughs) This is Jeremiah's pain and struggle and agony of what he's experiencing in being corrected according to the promise. I want you to know that just like Jeremiah, Jesus did the same thing. He cried out for justice among the nations, but according to the promise that they might be judged according to what they are going to do to Israel. But you want to know what Jesus had to face first? He had to face the wrath of his father first. Ask the Lord now, Lord, correct me but only with justice? Well, that's a very encouraging thing, but it's also a very weighty matter. You ask the Lord to correct you, but only in regards to the promise that He's given you? Man, that might mean that you have to go through some wrath and discipline before everyone else might. That might mean that like Jesus and Jeremiah, you're going to have to walk the same path. Oh, you still have a promise. You still have something that God has given you. You still have a legal decision in the court of God. And yet you might have to suffer a little bit for it. Tonight, we want to encourage you as you stand that God's not done with Israel and he's not done with you too. His justice is good to us. His justice remembers the promise that he made to you. And that promise he made to you might require you to be corrected a little bit. Amen? Amen. We're going to learn tonight as we pray that our life is not our own. That to engage in that promise that he's given us, We might have to let go of a few things in this house. But can I tell you, if we are sown in weakness, we will be raised up in power. 
if we are admitting to the station that we are at, we might actually be raised up in the kind of power that can impact our life, our home, and our nation. You guys want to pray? Yes. As we pray, begin to commit yourself to the Lord, to the correction that comes upon a life that has a promise with Him. Mighty God, Lord, we lift you up in the highest possible regard. Lord, you are the creator and sustainer of everything that is around us. Lord, you are the one supreme God. Lord, we acknowledge that you have a double claim on our lives. So we give ourselves double.